Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. While we work on Season 5 of this podcast, we're pleased to offer you these summer interludes. For today's show, I'm delighted to bring you the audio version of my recent live stream chat with Professor Zara Anahanslin and Arthur Burns about the Georgian Papers program. Now, most of you probably know that some Americans had a little, shall we say, disagreement with King George III a couple hundred years ago. Something about uh, taxation, tea, and tyranny. But did you know that researchers, librarians, and digital humanists on both sides of the pond are busy digitizing and interpreting the papers of the Georgian monarchs, their families, and members of the royal household from the 18th and 19th centuries? What can we learn about early America, and especially the American Revolution, from these documents? Well, stay tuned to find out. As always, if you'd like to see the images associated with this live stream, consider watching the video version by going to mountvernon.org slash gwdigitaltalks. I hope you enjoy the program. Hey, good afternoon to everyone uh, here in North America, and good evening to our friends in the United Kingdom. Thank you all so very much for joining us for our latest Washington Library Book Talk Tuesday. I'm Jim Ambusky. I lead the Center for uh, the Library Center for Digital History, where I also serve as the host of the podcast Conversations at the Washington Library. And so be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Now, on today's show, I'm very, very excited because we're going to talk about one of my favorite programs, the Georgian Papers Program, or the GPP for short. As you'll hear in a few moments from our distinguished guests, the GPP uh, is an ambitious effort to digitize the papers of George III, as well as those of his family. One of the project's major goals is to create new research and teaching opportunities about the era of the American Revolution, the Atlantic world in the 18th and 19th centuries, and the history of Great Britain in this period. And folks, that's just the tip of the historical iceberg. In a moment, uh, I'll properly introduce my guests, Professor Zara Anahanslin and Arthur Burns, for what promises to be a really wonderful and exciting discussion about this project. But before I do so, uh, I actually thought I might lay some of the groundwork by talking about my own experiences with the Georgian Papers program. This is a project that has been instrumental to my career as a historian, and since I'm in the host here, I thought I might uh, take the prerogative, or the king's prerogative, you might say, and talk just briefly about my own experiences with this project and what it has meant to me as a way to set up uh, some of our conversation later. In 2015, I got really lucky. Uh, I was extremely fortunate to be a Georgian Papers Program Research Fellow with the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture out of the College of William and Mary. And so I was lucky to spend September of that year working in the archives at Windsor Castle, just outside of London. And I should note here, and as you'll, you'll learn more about in just a bit, that Mount Vernon has a Georgian Papers Program Fellowship, as does the Library of Congress, and several, several other of our partner institutions uh, across the United States uh, and Europe. When I was in Windsor, every morning I would leave my flat, it was just down the street from the castle. I would arrive at the castle, check in with various security offices, and I would pass through gates like this one. This is the Norman Gate. This was built by King Edward III in the 14th century. Uh, so you're really passing through a significant period of history walking underneath it. And then having passed through a discreet door, I would climb up about 100 stone steps each morning. Uh, so I got really got my steps in during this fellowship. And I arrived in the, the Royal Archives' manuscript reading room, which is here 
inside the round tower at the castle. And I love the symbolism about the archives being in this place. The Royal Archives are in what historically would have been the last defensible position inside of the castle. And through a window in the reading room, I could look across Great Windsor Park to see the equestrian statue of George III, a statue not unlike the one that American rebels tore down and beheaded in New York on July the 9th, 1776, in celebration of the Declaration of Independence. Now, I'm a historian of the American Revolution and the Atlantic world. I researched the connections between Scotland and America in this period, especially immigration, loyalism, and the law. And I went to Windsor Castle and the Royal Archives looking for evidence about George III and his government's involvement in controlling outward migration from Scotland in the years just before the war. Uh, a lot of Scots were settling in North America in that period, and I wanted to understand uh, the, the imperial state's attitude towards uh, this event. Hopefully you'll be able to learn more about this when my book comes out in a couple of years. But I managed to find some evidence uh, in support of my primary project, but as I also stumbled across a wealth of other documents that have led to other projects, including a cache of letters like this one, written by Admiral Sir Samuel Hood, a, royal, a senior royal naval officer uh, who was very active and, and played an important role in the American Revolution. And in this particular letter and others, Hood expresses his candid feelings about the performance of his fellow commanders at the Battle of the Chesapeake Bay in September 1781, the British defeat at the hands of the French Navy that makes George Washington's victory at Yorktown possible just over a month later. Uh, and so this is all to say that the GPP is inspiring us to rethink what we know about the history of this period. We're finding new documents that are enabling us to tell new stories about this critical part uh, of early America and of the British Atlantic world. And there's so much more to discover. It's the, uh, for one of those, that reason, I'm therefore delighted to have two of my colleagues on today's show to help us understand more about the Georgian Papers program and what we can learn from the materials inside Windsor Castle. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, first uh, Professor Arthur Burns, who is Professor of Modern British History at King's College London, and he is currently the Academic Director of the Georgian Papers program. Uh, Professor Burns is a historian of late Hoverian and Victorian Britain, and he engages with the Church of England's history over a much longer period, notably through a series of pioneering involvement in the digital humanities. He's also the co-founder of the Boy uh, Boydell and Brewer monograph series, Studies in Modern British Religious History, uh, which many of you may know. And this thing has published 35 titles to date. Burns studied for his undergraduate and his doctorate degree at Oxford University, and prior to joining King's College London in 1992, he was teaching at Mansfield College in Oxford, where he was also the sub-editor of the journal Past and Present. Zara Anna Hanslund is Associate Professor of History and Art History at the University of Delaware. She previously taught at CUNY and at Columbia. She received her PhD from the University of Delaware in 2009 and has held postdoctoral fellowships at the New York Historical Society and Johns Hopkins University. She's also the port, uh, author of this uh, very excellent book, uh, Portrait of a Woman in Silk, Hidden Histories of the British Atlantic World. Uh, if this book has not wormed its way into your collection yet, it should, and please make sure to do that as soon as you possibly can. She was the 2018 Mount Vernon Georgian Papers Program Fellow, working at the archives at Windsor Castle, the Washington Library, where I work, King's College and King's College London on her new project on the American Revolution, which is titled London Patriots. 
Uh, this past year, she was the Barrow Postdoctoral Sabbatical Fellow at the McNeil Center for Early American Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And in 2020-21, she will be a fellow at the Davis Center in the Department of History at Princeton University. And so without much further ado, it's my great pleasure to welcome both Ar uh, Arthur and Zara to the program. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> it's, pleasure. Good. it's good to see you both. Uh, Arthur, I see uh, uh, the man himself behind you there, uh, George III. Uh, well, I'm Queen, Queen Charlotte, sadly, but there we are. Uh, indeed. Well, and one of the things, actually, I think I found when I was in the Royal Archives was the lock of her hair, uh, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, may I ask where you're both coming from? And uh, Arthur, let's start with you. Where are you coming from this evening? So I'm uh, at home in Saffron Walden, which is uh, a, a town uh, 20 miles south of Cambridge, uh, which is where I live. And how, how are things at the UK in this moment? Uh, varied, I think. Um, and we're just poised to move out of lockdown properly. The, the, the mask-wearing phase is about to begin. We've been rather slow on that front. But it's, uh, I think it's, it's a bit of a wait and see at the moment. But things are probably improving, which is, which is great. Well, that's good. And if I saw on social media correctly, you were able to get into your office for the first time in, what, months, I think? Yes, months, yes. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I hope it was a, a welcome sight. <laughs> uh, Zara, welcome to the program. And where are you coming from this evening or this afternoon, rather? Yes, still afternoon for me. So um, I'm in Philadelphia and I am in my daughter's room, which is the, the room with the most privacy and best Internet connection. So I'm somewhat strangely um, talking to you from the desk that was also mine when I was little. So the desk I did all my homework on when I was about 10. So this is very bizarre, effective having an office this way. Um, and although I am physically in Philadelphia, part of me mentally is in Paris because it's Bastille Day. So mm -hmm. hence the, uh, the Eiffel Tower behind me. <laughs> in homage. Oh, I see it. Yeah. And we're, we're, I think we'll talk about Bastille Day just very briefly here in a moment. So I'm excited to talk about that. I just want to remind our audience that uh, after Arthur and Zara and I have a little bit of a chat, we'll actually uh, have the opportunity for you to ask questions of both these uh, fine colleagues. And so as you're listening along, please uh, think of a question, and then you can post that on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter, and colleagues behind the scene will serve them out in the second half of the program. Okay, and what we're going to do is actually we'll have Arthur and Zara talk uh, just briefly for a few minutes uh, about their respective projects, and then we'll get into more of a Q&A with, with me, and then before we turn that over to uh, audience questions. And so, Arthur, actually, let, let's begin with you. Um, you are the, the Georgian Papers Program uh, academic director at King's College London. And as I said at the top of the hour here, it's an ambitious program to digitize the papers of George III, uh, his family, and to make those available to the widest possible audience. Would you be able to give us some sense of the history of this archive, of this collection, uh, and, and a little bit about of its importance and, and about the GPP in general? So to start with the archive, um, as you say, it's, it's, it's housed literally in the round tower at Windsor, Windsor Castle. And that immediately gives us the sense that this is a very ancient archive, whereas in fact it isn't at all. Um, it only arrived there in the early 20th century. Um, there were no royal archives as such uh, before then. And among the first things which the royal archives, when they were created, acquired and housed, were this collection of papers that we now call the uh, Georgian papers that... Um, were found in the basement of Apsley House, the Duke of Wellington's house in, in London, where they'd been uh, since the, the reign of George IV. Mm -hmm. And they've, they've become the, the part of the nucleus of the collection that is the Royal Archives. It, it is the, the Queen's 
personal collection. It's not state papers at all. It's in a private part of the palace. And that's meant it has been extremely inaccessible over the years. Uh, the Even now, the security clearances you have to go to get in are, are quite significant and uh, uh, very restricted opening hours and so on. Um, it, it's more open than it once was. But in order to make this extraordinary collection uh, more widely accessible, the Royal Archives took the decision they wanted to experiment, not just with digitisation, which they've done before, but digitisation with open access. So it should be free of use to all who wanted to use it. And this led to a partnership with my own institution, King's College London, and then uh, the Omohondra Institute and William and Mary to uh, make that possible. And the, the, the partnership has grown. There remain a series of core partners, but we've worked very closely with the Library of Congress, with Matt Vernon, with the Sons of the American Revolution, with other British institutions, all of which have been contributing in different ways, either to support fellowships, to investigate the papers, or to assist with the process of getting them online. Because the other key fact about this collection is it's not catalogued. Mm. Uh, it, it's vast. There's about 455 thousand pages of it but what is in those pages is only known at a, a very broad level they're often quite sketchy descriptions about boxes rather than what the letters actually are and so an unusual feature of this project is not just digitizing an archive which is already well known as a physical archive yeah. it's doing that at the same time as it's introducing it as a physical archive as well and the processes that would normally take place in sequence of cataloguing and digitization and uh, dissemination and research are all happening at once mm -hmm. and informing each other. We'll say a little bit more about that later. I think the other thing I'd want to say that's very distinctive about it is when you introduced it as the papers of George III and his family, I mean, technically speaking, it's not described as that. It's the papers of the whole Hanoverian monarchy from 1714 to 1837 that remain in this uh, collection. But it's not quite that either, because over the years, lots of additional things have been added, things have been bought or found around the palace and, and moved into it. So lots of papers of courtiers and second order figures, as well as the, the papers of the monarchs themselves, lots of household documents are in there. And as far as it does contain all the monarchs, we're basically looking at although we have collections that we'd say these are Queen Charlotte's papers and these are George I's papers, what I think they are mostly is the papers of those people that George IV had when he died. So that we're seeing what survives is partly seen through a prism of the, the later uh, part of the Hanoverian period and what was regarded as significant uh, from there. So it's, so it's it patchy, but, it's, but even a small percentage of these papers, because there's so many, is huge. And we've now got well over 200,000 uh, online uh, of these pages about halfway through uh, but quite a lot have been scanned and beyond that so we're making substantial progress and we've now had more than 60 fellows go through the program uh, or other researchers under its sponsorship investigating uh, different themes uh, within it so it, at the, at its core business is the digitization but all around it are these other activities of research interpretation and now increasingly teaching. So I've been teaching out of it at King's in, in, in quite new ways for me. Um, perhaps we can say a little bit about that later. Yeah. And we, we and colleagues in the University of North Alabama are teaching with there. And all, all kinds of opportunities for using this archive in, in innovative ways as it's digitized. And we might talk about this a little bit later as well. But are, are there ways uh, that the publicans themselves can be engaged in this project? Absolutely. Um, I mean, we do a lot of public events uh, so we, we, we've done our best to, to 
to find those parts of the wider culture that are interested in George III. So Hamilton springs to mind. We did some work with the West End production and then also uh, with Nottingham Playhouse in Britain, which did the recent staging of The Madness of George III, which you may have seen because it was broadcast on YouTube by the National Theatre in London across the world uh, recently. And we worked very closely with the cast, Mark Gatiss and others, and then brought them to London for a discussion with historians about the mental health of George III and how that relates to modern discussions about mental health. It's a marvellous uh, occasion. We, we've had that opportunity to do quite a lot of outreach to, to which we always, these are always free events to which the public come. But the public are also involved in transcribing the documents. There's a, there's a very active programme running out of William and Mary where you can sign up to help us with the process of transcribing these documents. And quite a lot of research is also being done by private individuals using documents online. And we're always very happy to hear from people who are doing that. Well, that's really terrific. And, and thank you very much, Arthur, for that, that brief opening summary, your, your, your brief opening statement. And uh, we'll be back here in a second with you to, to ask some more probing questions about what some researchers are doing with this collection. And um, I do want to turn to Zara here for, for a spell because I want to do talk about um, – your work as a historian. I mean, as we said at the top of the programs are, you're a historian of early America, of the Atlantic world, and you're especially interested in 18th century material culture. I, I was wondering if you could help us understand what it means to actually study material culture. Um, and, you know, as you said, today is Bastille Day, uh, and, you know, July 14th, 1789, Parisians stormed the Bastille. Lafayette ends up with the key, and that key is now at Mount Vernon. He, he sends it to George Washington. And so, Maybe we could look at it through that uh, lens, and, and actually, you published something in WAP and the Washington Post today that actually speaks to that as well. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to discuss this object, which is one of my very favorite things at Mount Vernon, and um, which I think it was one of not just George Washington's, but subsequent generations of the Washingtons who lived there among mm -hmm. their favorite things as well, because this is one of only a very small handful of things um, that that survived intact in the mansion from George Washington's time to the present day. And I think that that speaks to um, the attachment that multiple generations of Americans in the Washington family had for this piece. Um, and I think this piece really exemplifies how material culture can tell us interesting and exciting things about the past um, that we wouldn't necessarily have in a letter. Um, for example, I don't think we have a letter from each of those generations of Washingtons in which they sit down and discuss their feelings when they gaze upon the key to the Bastille. Um, but what we do know is that they kept this object, they cherished this object, they had this object on display, um, and that tells us a lot about what it meant to them. Um, and I think what it meant to George Washington and to subsequent generations, not just of the Washington family, but of the many Americans who came on pilgrimage, so to speak, to Mount Vernon in the 18th and 19th centuries, and of course the 20th and 21st, um, is the enduring um, hope that Americans like Washington and the others of the founding generation had, that the American Revolution would be a spark that became a flame um, that engulfed the world in Republican um, Republican spread of liberty and equality. Um, and the falling of the Bastille, the storming of the Bastille, um, and its subsequent destruction really symbolized for Americans this moment of hope that their revolution was going global in the best possible way. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you as well is, in, in, is uh, how did you become interested in, in studying material culture? What was it about objects that attracted you as a serious, uh, uh, serious thing of inquiry? I think that, again, um, if we zoom in on the key a little bit, um, 
it, it offers a window into discussing this uh, because if you look at the key, and this is one of the things that I think is actually a bonus to our pandemic world of um, presentation is that, you know, I can ask Oh, we may have got, we may have lost Sarah there. A glass case, glass encased, gilded, sort of Rococo filigree bottom there, um, uh, display case, and it's really pretty. But what you have to remember is that the reason this key um, came to Lafayette and made it across the ocean um, to Mount Vernon is that People stormed the Bastille, um, decapitated um, its governor, lieutenant governor, paraded their heads on pikes through the streets, and then um, and then French people subsequently destroyed the Bastille stone by stone. Um, in other words, there's a lot of violence um, that's embodied within this beautifully presented object. And that's a really long way of saying that objects are exciting because they tell stories. Um, and in this case, this tells multiple stories for multiple generations of people, um, whether it's the moment of violence, um, in this case, quite bloody violence in France, um, violence not unlike that practiced in the American Revolution. Um, you mentioned the tearing down of the statue of the king mm -hmm. um, in New York. Um, there are many, many moments. Um, American revolutionaries build their revolution on violence as much as any other thing. And um, I think that this this is object tells us those stories, those multiple layers and multiple generations of stories across space and time. Well, I, that's a wonderful description, I think, and I think it really helps to underscore the point you were making that, you know, something as uh, seemingly innocuous as an iron key, or um, I, if I remember the material correctly, can tell this multi-generational story about families, but also political ideology, about Atlantic revolutions, about, you know, as you say, the, the, the potential for a spark of republicanism and liberty to spread across uh, the Atlantic world. And I'm excited to talk more about some of the things you've been finding in the Georgian paper, or the, uh, the the Royal Archives at Windsor Castle, that are also material in nature and speak uh, to some of your your projects that you're working on right now. My cat says hello to everyone at home, so I think that's a common theme these days on on live streams. I've acknowledged his presence, and now he must be he must be uh, paid attention to. All right, um, Zara, thank you very much. And actually, let's uh, bring Arthur back into the conversation as we start to talk about the Royal Archives itself. And Arthur, I was wondering if you could help us better understand how the shared history of Britain and America is better understood uh, by some of the things we're finding in this particular archive. Well, I suppose when I started on this project, it was one of the areas I didn't expect to have much to say, because after all, the, the the role of George III in the American Revolution is, is hardly news. Um, and <laughs> the one thing that has been extensively researched in this archive is the, the main body of George III's Correspondence has been published uh, before and uh, trawled over by historians of both sides of the Atlantic for, for, for many, many uh, years. But actually, one of the things that surprised us very quickly, I think, and you were part of this story, Jim, with, with your work, um, was the way in which you began to realise, in fact, that the, what we thought was a complete record of the correspondence wasn't a complete record of the correspondence, that there were items missing which and, and elisions in the transcriptions that were published that we hadn't been aware of, that quite often documents that came with a letter, which were enclosed with them, and which once you saw it next to what had gone along with uh, the letter looked rather different. All that sort of thing was going to be uh, renewed in, in interest. 
And also, no one had really been doing this in Britain for quite a long time. There's not been a strong tradition of political history, and there'd be one or two exceptions, but, but on the whole, there was a kind of 30-year fallow period, which you could then go back to some of these documents uh, again and, and look at them with new questions uh, for them. And I think we've begun to see uh, in the archive, not only that you can go in, as both you and Andrew Shaughnessy did, and find new evidence about the, the king's own involvement in this, but also we put the king back in the, back in the context not only of his family, but also of all the second-order figures who made up the court mm -hmm. and whose documents simply haven't been explored properly in the past, which were a completely unknown uh, area. And the, and the document you started off by showing us, that, that wonderful letter, uh, uh, no, not, not that one, no, the uh, one before that Jim showed us of, from, to, uh, of Admiral Hood, uh, was the one I was thinking of there, um, is, that's the one, um, is this written to this guy, Jacob de Boudet, who I'd never heard of when we started this project, and it turns out was a, a Swiss soldier of fortune, effectively, who'd ended up as the tutor to uh, William, future William IV, uh, often wrote to George III, often wrote in, in legible handwriting and in French, and no one had really been through his archive, and yet that's where this letter describing the battle turns up and it's saying something about how information flows mm -hmm. back from the American Revolution to the UK and through which channels. And this is clearly a general trying to get his oar in first before the politicians start telling George III how badly it had all gone. And Gabe Paquette, who also did some work on the diplomatic correspondence, started finding the same sort of thing when he looked at Britain's relations with Spain during the American Revolution. So, so that is, that's one key area. We, we understand the information flows and the understanding in Britain of the American Revolution in, in some new ways. And I think the other two things i just add to that are there are new documents of other types as well. So the early education of George III and his essays is a remarkable storehouse of George's engagement with ideas and texts, which often frame his understanding of America and his understanding of the world more generally, his political philosophy, those are still very poorly understood. And we're being able to do quite a lot of work on them as documents, as material culture, which is helping us understand them and the way they relate to each other. And, and a famous find there was this essay, America is Lost, which, yeah. is, which we've described in several different ways as we've got to understand it better and better, that it's not an essay by George III. It's an essay copied from Arthur Young, the English agriculturalist, but then it's not just copied from Arthur Young because George changes the end, the, the, the punchline to one that's saying that the, that the revolution is going to be uh, a disaster, to one that says Britain will flourish regardless. And so again, we're getting a, a new understanding of how ideas move around in Britain around it. And finally, I'd say that we, we also get people making connections with other collections. So there's a marvellous project getting underway at the University of Hull here, called Treated Spaces, which is looking at Native American presences in uh, Britain and treaties with the British royal family and the material culture that surrounded them. And they're now beginning to work with the Georgian papers to explore with their expertise, which we don't have, what to make of the traces of Native American culture that we can find within the royal archives. And no one's ever done that kind of work in there before. You can do the same with Maori culture, you can do the same uh, with Chinese culture, with the McCartney mission, all those, that global Georgian world, the way in which the, the British king sat at the middle of global networks of power and influence, and which provided the context for what happens in America, particularly the West Indies as well. Uh, we're beginning to explore those in new, new ways, I think. So it's pervasive in all the collections that you'll find traces of 
the American context or the American events all over the place. No, I, 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 it's, it's terrific. And I remember the day that I actually came across those two city letters. I couldn't believe, believe what the heck what I had. Um, that was a very good day. Um, but for me, but Zara, I want to ask you, you know, why were you interested in exploring this archive and what, and what potential did you think it held for your own research? Well, Arthur actually set this up as nicely as if we rehearsed it when he used the phrase global Georgians, um, because that's really that's really behind my interest in this archive. Um, and if we if we go to the image, um, the Edwards, the copy of Edward Savage's um, Liberty painting, it'll be a, a good way into this. Um, this is this is actually a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, it's how people like to do things in the late 18th and early 19th centuries as today. And this is a copy of the figure of Liberty um, offering a cup to what you recognize as the bald eagle um, with the American flag topped by a Liberty cap behind her. Um, and then underfoot, um, she's trotting upon the key to the Bastille, which you might recognize um, is uh, directly copied from the actual key to the Bastille. Edward Savage was um, an American painter who visited Mount Vernon a couple of times and also painted um, a famous painting of the Washington family of George and Martha and um, one of their enslaved um, servants, as well as two of the Custis grandchildren. But he also painted this, this thing called Liberty, which was done in 1796. Um, and this became so popular. Um, it was copied in print form. Thomas Jefferson hung it in the parlor at Monticello. Um, this copy shows how popular it was, not just um, in America, but globally, because this is actually a painting on glass that the Chinese um, market produced for American consumption. So I love this because this is a great reminder that we've lived in long lived in a global world um, and that the American revolutionaries um, and the subsequent French revolutionaries lived in just as global a world. Um, also an interesting reminder that America's been buying things made in China for quite some time. Um, but the reason I wanted to bring this out is that um, I think it not only shows the sort of wide popularity that that key to the Bastille obtained. Um, mm -hmm. Washington had it traced and that image was put in American newspapers and Savage, of course, could have seen it when he was um, painting the Washingtons themselves. But this is something that in this painting gains wide popularity around the world. Um, and apologies to our British friends, but of particular, um, particular relevance to the Royal Archives at Windsor Castle is the fact that next to the Bastille, the other thing that Liberty is trotting upon is the Star of the Order of the Garter, um, which, is, uh, which, is, which is a symbol of investiture um, of a ceremony that takes place um, still at the chapel at Windsor Castle. Um, and I know this because it's closed to researchers on that day and we can't go research. Um, but so I think this is a wonderful um, exemplifier, this, this particular image and this, this piece of material culture of just how global the American Revolution was. Um, this one piece encapsulates Britain, France, America, and China. And um, that was one of the main reasons I was very excited to research um, in the Royal Archives and also the adjacent collections in the Royal Library and the Royal Collections. Um, because I think that although wonderful work has been done on the American Revolution as a global event, I think it's still not um, common enough knowledge that it was a global event. Um, one of the things that I was most struck by and th that I was most forcefully struck by reading letters in the Royal Archives was how little most um, most high-ranking um, Britons who were attached to the court or the military even cared about what was going on in North America. Yeah. They were overwhelmingly concerned with the Caribbean and um, secondarily concerned with um, whether or not France might, for example, invade across the channel. And for an American researcher, um, 
that's something that, although yes, is something that I knew to read that over and over again in the letters really hammered that fact home. Um, and so the sort of global nature of the American Revolution and the abilities to make those transatlantic types of connections, and as importantly, to get into the point of view and the perspective of a British rather than an American take on the war um, was what initially drew me to the research there. And so can you tell us about some of the, the discoveries that you've made uh, in the archives that speak to your latest project, which would it's called London Patriots, and, and perhaps we might say something about uh, what that is, a brief synopsis, uh, if that's okay, and you know how some of the materials that you've found inform your thinking about this project. Yeah, so this project um, is a descriptive collective biography of people who were pro-American, um, some rapidly so during the revolution, who all had intertwined lives in London at some point. Um, and this is partly inspired by the fact that there's been wonderful research done on the loyalist diaspora, mm -hmm. on Americans who decided not to throw in their lot with the American revolutionary patriots, um, which I'm sure most everyone watching this or listening to this knows. Um, American patriots were never a majority of the population when um, the imperial crisis was brewing throughout the war. And I think that's something that we need to bear in mind. Um, a lot of Americans did not take up arms against the king, and a number of them ended up obviously going back to Great Britain. Um, and thinking about those people um, has been something that scholars have rightly paid attention to, um, and not just not just white Americans, but also formerly enslaved people who seized their own freedom um, and were part of that loyalist diaspora as well. Um, and I think it's important to recognize them, but what intrigued me is that there's also a much smaller but really fascinating group of um, many of them artists, uh, patriots who are based in London during the Imperial Crisis and the Revolutionary War era itself. Um, and no one's really looked at them as a collective group. Um, and they're fascinating people because, like I said, a lot of them are, are artists. Um, they're people like Robert Edge Pine, who's one of my, um, one of my main uh, historical uh, characters, so to speak. Um, Prince Dima, who's the first enslaved portrait painter of, of any... Um, identifiable enslaved portrait painter in America who um, is trained in London by Robert H. Pine. And here you see a portrait um, by Robert H. Pine of, and with some help from John Hopner of Patience Wright, who is another of these London patriots, um, the American wax sculptor um, who was a cause celeb, um, sculpted the royal family. Um, apparently, anecdotally, I wasn't able to find proof of this, disappointingly enough in the royal archives, referred to the king and queen as George and Charlotte, um, and enjoyed royal patronage until um, she uh, made it very clear after the Battle of Lexington and Concord in 1775 that she could not handle what George III was doing to her fellow Americans um, and began um, began making very pointed political statements in terms of the wax figures she was creating, um, including one of William Pitt, um, which is still ensconced in Westminster Abbey today in the um, in the uh, the robes in which he died in Parliament very dramatically. Um, but so people like Patience Wright, who um, was also a very ineffective spy um, for the Americans, um, so ineffective actually that uh, in in the uh, in the British Library I found um, some letters, um, and this gets to the point about connected archives. I found some letters that Patience Wright was among the groups of Americans that um, British officials were watching um, 
whose letters they were taking and reading because they suspected them of espionage. Um, and so we know that she was trying to spy, but in this case, they let the letters go on because they were so full of misinformation. They thought that uh, she would actually do them a favor by spreading this misinformation to, uh, to her, people she was trying to inform, like Benjamin Franklin in, in Paris. So um, so all of these people have, um, have interesting, um, some direct and some indirect connections to um, George the third and other members of the royal court, um, and sort of going on their trail was um, was the other the other reason I, I wanted to go to the royal archives, and I did find some interesting things. That, that's an amazing story. I, I love that, and, and actually, you raised the issue of race and enslaved laborers, and and earlier, Arthur, actually, you had talked about uh, a project centered on indigenous peoples. And so I'm kind of wondering, you know, you know, you already started to touch on this. What are some of the ways that other researchers are using these materials that excites you in this particular moment? So I think that one of the most striking things about this as a project is that it hasn't got its own question. And there's no question the Georgian papers are trying to answer. So we're and we're partly using scholars to come and explore the archive to see what the questions are that we should be asking of it and where they've got answers and where they haven't got answers. And so slavery was actually one of the things we very early on had researchers in looking for links between the royal family who were famously divided in their opinions at different points on uh, slavery as an issue. Um, and uh, initially we didn't find as much as we thought there might be. There was some, some very interesting material coming through from Suzanne Schwartz and her work on uh, Sierra Leone and, and, and connections there, and also um, uh, uh, Vincent Carrero and I was looking there. But then suddenly David, David Armitage came in, and we hope to hear from him later this year when his postponed lecture as the Sons of the American Revolution uh, visiting professor. He, he found some interesting materials in the Georgian essays written by George as a young man, in which you see him talking about the law of nations. And some of that material, I think, may have rather more bearing on this than we thought in terms of giving some insight into the Crown's attitude. And I think it's this kind of exploratory thing. We've been trying to get people to hook up because it's an interdisciplinary project. One of the great things, I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the, the day we had with Zara talking about her project when she was here was fantastic. But quite typical, we had Zara talking about her project and also working with people working in related fields of material culture. But in the audience for that, we had uh, intellectual historians, political historians, listening and thinking about how that bore on their own work. And those sort of juxtapositions of different types of scholars, bringing them together is what we're trying to do. And we, we're finding different ways of doing that, partly through the meetings and colloquia we have, but also through encouraging them to work together. So in an online exhibition, I think we may have an example of one uh, which can be shown here. Uh, we've been putting on the website a series of curations of documents by fellows, mm -hmm. sometimes joining here. My co-academic director, Karen Wolfe, joined with a wonderful young British scholar, Madeline Pelling, uh, to mount some material that reflected Maddie's research, but also Karen's interest in genealogy, into this question about how do we find documents around the theme of women and history within this archive and pulling them together to tell a story about that. We've done the same with mental health. We've done it with a couple of other issues. And that sort of approach of people just bringing their interest to the archive and the only thing that unites us all is the archive is at the heart of this. I think that it's an exploratory project um, which also brings the archivists and the catalogers and the digital humanists working with us into that conversation at the same time. And it's in those, those combinations that we see new, new approaches to the archive with different emphases, sometimes about them as material culture, sometimes about them as text, 
that, that that's generating a, a vast range. And if you want to get a sense of it, I, all I can do is suggest people listening to this go and look at the website where you'll see uh, quite a number of blogs written by different members of the team about particular documents or particular discoveries that they've made, or sometimes their frustration in finding nothing about something they thought would be there but wasn't. Um, Oh, I understand that, certainly, uh, <laughs> with my primary project. You raise the, the issue of, you know, the GPP isn't asking the question of the archive. You know, you're bringing researchers in to ask questions of it. And so uh, you, you started to uh, nod to this already, but what are some questions that we didn't think to ask uh, until this project began? Well, speaking for myself, I think the scholars were all slightly lazy. <laughs> um, when someone's produced a volume called the correspondence of George III, you tend to think, okay, I'll use that because it's printed and I don't have to worry about handwriting and all that kind of thing. But actually, when, when you digitise the documents, and this is where I think we could see that uh, other document, uh, the abdication uh, mm -hmm. draft, that here's a document you will find in the printed correspondence of George III. It's, a, it's George III drafting an abdication speech that he intends to give on a number of occasions in slightly different forms to Parliament to say, basically... I've had it with the British polity. It's no longer taking the things I take seriously. God's clearly not particularly supportive of what I'm trying to do, and therefore I should just gracefully withdraw probably to Hanover. And in that document, what I think is very striking is when you see the original, you see the deletions, because everything that's underlined in this is not underlined for emphasis. It's a deletion. And so if you read this in the published correspondence, it's just a neat speech. Mm -hmm. Whereas here you see all the second thoughts, you get the sense of the anxiety with which it's being written, and that materiality of the archive. And we are digitising everything. We're digitising not just the written on paper, we're digitising the blank paper on the back of it as well. So the whole of every document is uh, there. That, that, I think, makes us approach these with half the mind of an editor as well as half the mind of a historian. And that's always a good combination, I think, where you're looking at how the text is fashioned and how it's been thought through about some of the mechanics of communication that these uh, these objects embody in the period. And, and they have fantastic details in many cases. So George's own letters are not just dated to the day, they're dated to the minute. And you're effectively looking at email exchanges with attachments because the documents go with them and the speed of communication between the British political elite within the London setting is comes through very, very forcibly and is a theme that I think we'd like to do rather more on that. I think the other thing you get is the, the sense of other things coming in scope. So the family coming in scope to the political history and the political history coming in scope to the history of the family, which otherwise has been written rather as a kind of soap opera sometimes about the very colourful characters, these with extraordinary dramatic incidents in their lives. But bringing these different histories together, that the Georgian papers as a hub for something bringing all these different types of approaches into conversation with the objects which they share. Uh, I think is a particularly rich thing. And that happened very much with the Madness material. Um, I think the other document I, I brought a copy of to show here was a part of the records of the doctors uh, of what George III is doing when he's ill. And there's been a lot written about the illness of George III. It's, it's a classic study in the history of psychiatric history, the, the famous book, George III and the Mad Business, to trying to decide what was wrong with George III. But actually, very little has been written about what the mad George says about George. What do we find in his activities and his uh, delusions 
that can reflect back onto his kingship and onto his activity? And also, how does this history of the madness and the way it's been written by medical historians relate to the political history or the gender history or the families? And Karen Wolfe and I currently have two or three little projects we're working on to try and tease out that historiographical history of the ways in which these different approaches around this core set of documents can illuminate each other. And you find quite extraordinary ways in which political historians intervene in the British Medical Journal. The first person ever to write a scholarly article, I think, about George III was the superintendent of the Rhode Island Mental Asylum in 1855. And that's a very serious document that leads to a debate in America on what would you do if the president was found to be suffering from mental illness. Now, there's some quite interesting things going on around then. You get stuff in the 1930s, an American psychiatrist gets in to the World Archives, who later becomes Jack Ruby's psychiatrist. And had extraordinary connections with uh, subsequent uh, strands of, of thoughts, which no one's really looked at. And, and putting all these documents together, we start making those connections. Well, Zara, I mean, with Arthur talking about is, uh, materials that are being assess our assumptions in our various projects or in, or in the stories we've been telling for a long time. Did you come across anything in your research that forced you to rethink uh, your approach to your, your latest project or any project you're currently working on in general? Yeah, it absolutely forced me down some um, very intriguing rabbit holes. Um, and I will say, uh, by way of getting into that, that um, one of the things that's really delightful about researching the Royal Archives is that most people have really good handwriting. Um, the, uh, the the people working with the court um, who are recording things, and I was looking at a lot of inventories um, because part of the one of the people I was I was tracing what uh, did have a court appointment, mm-hmm. um, and so that was delightful. And the the worst handwriting I came across um, was actually the only American whose uh, whose letter who had a letter in the archives that I was looking at. Um, and that happened to be the daughter of Patience Wright, um, Phoebe Wright, who was married to um, British auth- artist uh, John Hopner. And um, I have a self-portrait of him. Um, so you can get get an eyeful of, of handsome Hopner there. And uh, Hopner is one of the people um, I was not planning on researching at all. Um, and would not have been were it not for the Royal Archives. Um, and this actually is um, is a print that is in the collect in the royal collections, um, which is the um, the fabulous collection of of art and artifacts um, that's um, also at Windsor Castle. And John Hopner was uh, a Royal Academy of Art um, member. He was uh, he was highly regarded. Um, he also was widely rumored to be the illegitimate son of George III. Um, which is something that is very interesting because um, by all accounts, George III um, was not a philanderer, unlike many members of his extended family um, notoriously were. And um, the story behind Hopner being the illegitimate son of George III, I found fascinating because um, it's one of those things that whether or not it was true, um, Hopner's associates didn't seem to be denying it. Um, It was sort of obliquely obliquely allowed to be thought to be true, which is interesting. Um, and so I started doing a deep dive into John Hopner and his relationship to George III, because Hopner, as I mentioned, married one of Patience Wright's daughters, um, Phoebe, who also helped her create wax sculptures um, in London. Um, and John Hopner, as it turned out, was a member of, of um of the choir, um, one of the choir boys, uh, the Royal Choir, and his education was paid for by George III. Um, He was um, housed with one of the librarians um, in the Royal Collections. Mm -hmm. Um, In other words, he had 
lots of royal patronage, lots of royal connections, um, including um, art patronage. Um, the king helped to bankroll his um, his time in the Royal Academy of Art, and then suddenly um, ceased to support him economically when he married um, Patience Wright's daughter, Phoebe. Um, so the day after he married, um, soon after he married Phoebe, he was cut off financially from the king, um, which he and others attributed to his marriage um, because George III was not fond of how violently vocal um, Patience Wright was in her pro-American stance. Now, all of this is very, you know, gossipy. Speaking of gossipy, right, Arthur, very gossipy, um, sort of unsubstantiated rumors. But what's interesting is that um, a lot of court is like that, right? It's a lot of what happens at court are these unsubstantiated um, rumors and gossip. And so I ended up doing a deep dive rabbit hole um, research dig into John Hopner and um, and, you know, there are a lot of intriguing things. Um, he, is, he is close friends with members of the nobility and royal family. Um, they are his children's um, godparents. There's a lot of there there. Um, one, of, one of his sons um, ends up going mad from porphyria, um, an interesting connection, speaking of, of, the, uh, of the medical history. Um, in other words, there's an interesting connection there. And the reason I find this so intriguing partly is that um, I think it also encapsulates how divided people in the um, British Empire were over what was happening politically at the time. Mm -hmm. Because um, obviously John Hopner is very much in a royalist camp, yet he marries the daughter of this pro-American um, spy um, who's known to be a spy, right? And um, her other daughter, Patience Wright's other daughter, married a um, the first prisoner of war, um, a man called Ebenezer, who um, was was possibly going to be tried for treason, um, but the Admiralty Court um, couldn't figure out whether they wanted to do so. And he languished in prison until um, he was finally released on bail. Um, he had the support of John Wilkes and others um, as a sort of someone whose liberty was being violated, um, got put out on bail and then promptly um, sort of uh, skipped out of town and went to Paris. Um, but he ended up marrying Patience Wright's other daughter. And what I find fascinating about this is on the one hand, you have the poster child for should Americans who are found in open rebellion against Britain be tried for treason or not. And on the other hand, you have the perhaps illegitimate son of the king as brothers-in-law. Mm -hmm. And to me, what could be more fabulous an example of how very dramatic some of the um, family tensions were, um, literally as well as metaphorically in the American Revolution. So Handsome Hopner is, is my one of my best deep dive rabbit um, rabbit holes that I went down in the archives. Um, and as I said, I, I never would have given him more than a passing thought had it not been for um, what I found there. Holy cow, that's a great find. <laughs> I'm looking forward to your book. Well, as I promised the audience, we will have time for some for some of your questions. Uh, if you'll indulge me for just two more of my own, I'd appreciate it. And we'll get to your thoughts in just a moment. And I, I do want to ask one final question of each of you. Uh, Arthur, as we've been we're talking, you know, tech, the idea of technology has come up a little bit. And that's increasingly shaping how historians uh, like myself, like you, like Zara are doing their work. And that's even more apparent in a period like this when we're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And so, you know, when so many of us are working and researching from home, and so can you maybe talk for just a moment about the ways in which technology is shaping this project and the choices you're making as one of the academic directors of it? Well, um, and I've worked in various forms of digital humanities for quite a long time now. I first went digital in the late 1990s and founded a, a, an online database that we thought was originally going to be a CD-ROM, but by the time we'd actually got off the ground, it had gone online. And 
one of the biggest things for me that's marked out my career as a historian is I've not written uh, as many books as many people because I've published quite a lot online. And I don't regret that for a minute because I think it's a hugely democratising aspect. And my parents' generation of historians in Britain all spent their time talking to local history associations, the Workers' Educational Association, and the time to do that has largely evaporated with the pressures of modern life. And going online with these kind of projects not only means you can disseminate your research to a much wider audience, but also means you can work with people as your research colleagues who are not in the academy much more readily and make connections across time and space again, which would not have been possible without it. So we can have a project like this, which is equally at home in William and Mary and in King's College London and in other parts of the world as people. I was teaching my course in which I give students completely free run of the archive. They have no teaching at all. They're simply told at the day one, you will, by the end of this course, have chosen a document that you choose that interests you and you will do an online edition of it with a website built around it. And... The, this year, they were finished off by students in, in quarantine in Singapore, in Chicago, in California, um, in Finland, and they were still able to do it because of the digital, and they were able to make research discoveries. We had a, a student in George, uh, Georgetown who I think ended up, um, sorry, not Georgetown, but she ended up producing uh, an entire account of the hang of Kensington Palace pictures in the 1740s, locating every picture, identifying every picture, reconstructing the physical hang from her room in North America in, in quarantine. And the fact that you can do that and bring people in and involve them and have those conversations is to me a, a key thing. And then the other thing is the metadata because the creation of the, the, the means to research these documents is a research project in itself mm -hmm. and as I know from my costs that I've spent a lot of my career designing how you can make effective search engines for different types of data that I mounted online so that the public can research them in a sensible way and also academics can use them in a sensible way and the amount of research you often have to do to make effective organization and, and structuring of the data to make that possible is I think hugely underestimated not least because we always hide it under the bonnet so it doesn't put people off when they try and do it. But, but, it, but it's, it's a very rewarding kind of research because it enables other people to do history and to come with the history they want to pursue, not the history you've told them they can pursue. And that's tr true of a school student, as it is true of a university student, as it's true of the most advanced professor. And the fact that we can have those conversations in this project. So my, my undergraduates were talking to people working in the States in in, in universities across the states about their projects on an equal footing because they were able to say i found this are you interested and, and have the conversation back forth that's what it's teaching should be like and you know it's always what research should be like i think oh i think that, I think that's point for that. <laughs> uh, i'm going to steal that assignment because i think that's terrific and i'm 100 with you on metadata because it's absolutely crucial uh you know we can geek out all day about that stuff as well and zara last question here what, what arthur's talking about are forging, forging connections across time and space uh, with different people and doing this research. And you, you started to talk a little bit earlier about sort of the relationship you've seen between materials in the Royal Archives and in uh, other repositories. So I wonder if you could touch briefly on that again, but then you know, I'm also wondering how we should think about an archive itself as a, as a, a material object in general. I mean, what is your, your sense on, on uh, that thing as a material object in its own right? Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, I think 
starting with the first one, um, thinking about making connections. I mean, one of the most valuable things um, that the time at the Royal Archives did for me was inspiring me to go down not just rabbit holes, but um, into allied collections with um, information from the British Library to um, to the City of London Metropolitan Archives to to um, National Archives at Kew, um, as well as the Royal Academy of Art. Um, and if we could show uh, one of the images from the Georgian Papers um, program that has been digitized that I looked at um, in person, which is uh, an inventory, one of the Georgian inventories um, uh, of, of uh, art, art held, speaking of Arthur, your, the project you just referenced, um, art owned by the royal family and put on display in various rooms. Um, and this, this to me, and this, this speaks to the physicality of, of, the, um, of the archival experience, um, digitally you can get at all this information, it's all there. Um, but there's something about holding this book um, in your hands and seeing the beautiful marbled um, paper that um, you can barely see peeking around the edges there of the binding. Um, it's beautifully bound in leather and the handwriting is gorgeous as you can see. And just the thing itself gives you an example. This is basically just, you know, like an insurance list that we would make um, of items in our home and the sort of the, the materiality of it as a beautiful object, um, despite its completely utilitarian purpose was really striking to me. And I think that's something you really get when you're physically there. The other thing that was striking to me is, um, this is uh, the King's Closet, so one of the more intimate spaces um, in the King's series of chambers. Um, and you'll see what's just casually hanging on the wall here. You know, there's um, there's a Correggio, um, there's a Raphael, and this is the way the entire um, inventory is. And what I think is striking about this, um, two things actually. One is that this is in 1776. So as we're thinking about what Americans are doing in terms of art, in 1776, um, this is what this is what the king has going on, right? Um, is old masters, um, and I think that it's really interesting to think about um, the deliberate pivot that George made to um, to patronize American and British artists. So Benjamin West um, and you know great great British artists um, as well as as American expats, um, and that this was one of the primary factors behind the establishment of the Royal Academy of Arts, um, where I did so much archival work. And I think that that's also something that um, Americans don't often appreciate about George III. You know, we, we tend to fixate on him as the sort of um, stereotypically mad or stereotypically tyrannical. Um, but to remember that this was a man who, um, through his patronage, really shifted the course of, uh, of British art in very important ways and American art as well, because we benefited from that. I think this, this one object really hammered that home to me. Um, and by way of comparison, um, if we could show the, the portrait of Christian Barnes, um, this is the portrait of, uh, of a loyalist woman um, who was um, a resident of uh, Boston and Marlboro, Massachusetts. And this was a portrait done by um, the young man she held enslaved um, called Prince Dima, who had just returned from um, being trained in London in painting by Robert H. Pine, um, who were two of the other people I was on the trail of. Um, Robert H. Pine, um, the son of engraver John Pine, who was buddy-buddy with, um, with William Hogarth and had um, a couple of royal appointment, appointments, including um, hold, keeper of the seal, engraver of the seal under George II. In other words, Robert H. Pine is a highly connected um, artist himself, trained 
named Prince Dima, and then Prince Dima returned to um, to America in 1771 um, and took up painting there. So he's the first identifiable enslaved portrait painter um, in trace in America. And this is a portrait he did of Christian Barnes, the woman who held him in um, in enslavement, but also sent him to London to have him trained um, because she saw artistic promise in him. Um, and you'll see that there's a rip in her bodice there. And that is because um, the Barneses, after a series of events in which a horse was tarred and feathered, among other things, um, fled fled America for the duration. They fled in 1775. Um, their house was commandeered by Henry and Lucy Knox um, and, and patriots who took it over um, shoved bayonets through the hearts of these portraits. So acts of iconoclasm and destruction, just like the toppling of the Bastille or you know the toppling of the statue of George III. Um, and in this case, what's fascinating about this is not only is this one of the few pieces of art from America that we know was done by an enslaved portrait painter, um, he chose to stay behind and he styled himself free. He self-emancipated and he um, fought with the Massachusetts militia on the side of the Patriots until he died, sadly, in 1778. Um, but so to think about what this man was able to create um, in, in an American art world that was severely constrained compared to that of Britain um, was astounding to me. And even more so when you think about um, what's possible in, in Europe, you know, when you have the King's closet, um, filled with Raphael's, um, to think about what's happening in America with art at the same time, I think is, is really revealing. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me, the, the materiality of this is so poignant, um, because not only does it speak to this enslaved man's art, artistry and, um, self-emancipation. I think it also speaks to the violence of the American Revolution, the mm -hmm. fact that um, patriots were not nice to loyalists, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and letters from Christian Barnes, um, once they'd relocated in England, in Bristol, um, she writes back, she's very upset that Lucy Knox, the wife of Henry Knox, the um, future Secretary of War of the United States, um, has taken her furniture Etc. in her house. And she just wishes that Lucy would at least send the portraits back because she should know how much they mean to her. Yeah. Um, so again, I think a really um, interesting example of how the revolution really ruptured um, households, whether they were households of free and enslaved people or households of um, families. Um, but to me, again, the chance to sort of step back away from the American perspective and think about putting this portrait in the perspective of, you know, a 1776 portrait um, hanging in the King's closet by Raphael was, was a very important moment for me. That's remarkable. Thank you very much. And thanks to you both. Uh, I do want to have some time for audience questions in here. You all have been very patient. So thank you very much as we've been talking over the last uh, hour or so. So we've, as you can tell, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. We could probably go for about six or seven more hours, but uh, the, you know, there is the time difference there in the UK. So Arthur, we don't want to keep you up too late. Uh, but we do want to have some audience questions. Oh, hello, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Adam uh, would like to know, Dr. Burns, is there an archive? Is the archive mostly public papers or are these the private papers among them? And, and do they shed light on the private feelings of the royal family about the American Revolution? So the answer is they are mostly private papers. So th there are no state papers in this collection at all. That they're, they're held separately in the uh, uh, National Archives. These these are the correspondence and documents that came with correspondence and the objects owned by 
the king and his family. So we have George III's map collection, for example, which is an extraordinary one, uh, as with his collection of prints, just to show you how he was understanding what was going on in America through his collection of images that he could use to take him there. Of course, he famously never travelled outside Britain, despite being the monarch with this extraordinary global uh, range, and even visit Hanover, where his, he had uh, his other holdings. So you do, you do get a very personal view. And one of the features of the archive and the digitization project is that nothing has been held back, which is quite unusual in terms of the way the Royal Archive has been handled, I think, in the past. So the medical papers, we have the daily reports of the doctors on everything that the king does. Now, they are occasionally self-censoring, but there's a huge amount there that would not normally have been made public, I think, until very, very recently. And uh, the wills as well, which are often regarded as the most private documents, they're, they're in the collection too. So it, 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 they are very personal. What you struggle with sometimes is the survival. So yes, there are documents that will give you snapshots, particular moments, often unexpected snapshots of reactions of individual members of the royal family to particular events and occasions particularly the boys during the uh, American War, you get the various princes writing to each other about their desire to serve. This extraordinary set of letters, which I you know you saw, Jim, that Prince William writes back to his dad from New York mm -hmm. in the early 1780s. And one of my student, undergraduate students this year, an American student, um, did uh, for her edition the copies of the petitions that were handed to William while he was in New York by loyalists and mapped where they came from in different areas of the city and who was involved in them. And that, that was a fascinating uh, document and his reaction to those and how they were then forwarded to George III with commentary. So, so you get those sort of both personal but also slightly official reactions in them. So you, uh, all human life is there in one way and, and you just have to take your chances to what survived. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much, Adam. Let's have another question, please. Uh, Brian would like to know, Zara and Jim, what publishing obligations did you have as GPP fellows? Did you publish your findings as articles? Uh, Zara, I'm listening carefully here. <laughs> Zara, please go ahead. Well, I, th I think that I owe a blog post of some sort, which I'm happy to produce um, anytime. Um, so, there's not a there's not a sort of uh, formal obligation um, other than the desire to have us do some sort of blog post production as fellows, um, and my research is mostly going towards this book in 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 process. So that's that's what's happening with with that stage of things. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I've I've been fortunate to contribute a couple of blog posts to the GPP blog. Um, I actually speaking of of William Henry, who was stationed in New York in the 1780s. I'm working on an article about him, and there's some GPP material will be in my book. But, um, yeah, it was really just a a call to, uh, for us to go in and say, tell us what you find. You know, help us understand what this thing is. Uh, help us figure out how we can make it the most out of it and what it could be. So, so, so the one obligation you did have, which you fulfilled, uh, was that you had told us what you, what you saw, what might be of interest to other people and what we should be doing with the documents. And I think other than that, we, the thing we want more than anything else is people's own projects to benefit from this research. So I think the first major publication we had was Rick Atkinson, The British Are Coming, which was yeah. from one of the early fellowships. Andrew O'Shaughnessy's published out of it. Gabe Paquette's pub published out of it. Maddie Pelling. So it just fits into people's own research projects and we're very happy to see it mm -hmm. come out in that way. I should. Oh, I'm sorry, Tara, please. No, I was just going to say, I think it's also important to note that um, one of the things that I really benefited from that I think a lot of us have is that um, 
we don't necessarily publish our findings yet, but we've lectured on them and we've discussed them. Um, and not, not just in formal lectures, but um, I know I wasn't the only one who did something with, uh, with graduate students in um, London at King's College, right? So I think that there are, I think it's important to remember when we discuss research and scholarship that there are a lot of ways that scholarship gets disseminated and that that um, conversation that people have um, inside as well as outside of the academy is really important. Um, and that very little gets published that wasn't first vetted in a sort of conversational oral um, setting. So, so we have a thing called the GPP Coffee Mornings, where we, we invite the fellows to talk before they found things to help us talk to them about how our experiences in the archive can help them find things when they go there. And we're hoping to take those online in the next few months uh, so they will be open to people who would like to come and join them through our King's Friends organisation, which is a free thing to sign up to, and we'll inform people when these events happen through that network. Yeah, it's a, it really does take a village. And I, I should note, actually, this came out today, Rick Atkinson is one of the nominees for the 2020 George Washington Book Prize, you know, based on some of the material that he collected with the GPP. Uh, we've got one, one uh, time for one final question. And we'll bring the ship home. Uh, Cynthia Miller would like to know, could you talk, uh, uh, possibly talk about the process of digitizing a bit more? And for example, when uh, acquiring a resource like Queen Charlotte's Diary, what is the handling uh, care of it? The steps, are you using gloves, tools, and then what's the actual process of making this a digital object? So I've, I've not been doing it myself. So my understanding is that quite a the main thing is, is what you'd expect. There's a f initial checks for conservation status, and that's slowed us down on some areas of the archive, which otherwise you might have been able to do because a lot was damaged quite badly at Ashley House. So the George IV papers, particularly in very poor condition. Um, once that goes, that's done, then they're photographed in situ in um, the, the, the royal uh, household. And that, in fact, nothing is allowed really easily to cross the barriers, except the digital images, and even those have to come out on physical sticks because of the strength of the firewalls around the royal palaces. So no, it's, a, it's, it's a highly secure environment they're coming out of. Um, I, I suspect we're not using gloves very much, at least uh, on the whole, our, our preferred practice, certainly the British uh, archival research community now is not to use gloves. I think we feel we lose sensitivity and actually risk damaging documents uh, uh, more of, rather than less if, if you can't actually tell what you're doing as you're holding the item. They are treated with great respect, I would hasten uh, to add, but uh, that's the kind of thing. And then the tool is just a standard digitalization rig, um, and then they're turned into PDFs and mounted on an archival site in the Royal Collection Trust's site, which we can then access through the Georgian Papers website. And, and Zara, actually, I'll just throw this in real quickly. I don't know if you had this experience, but uh, there was a couple of times when I was there where I found something that wasn't exactly in the, the greatest of shape. And so I was wondering if you had that same experience where you could work with the archivist to sort of identify something that might need conservation prior to digitization. Yeah, definitely. I will say that um, by and large, the things that are in the Royal Archives are much better conserved than a lot of places. Um, mm -hmm which might reflect funding over the years, I don't know. But um, but I think that that is one thing that um, leads me to something I think it's really important to say, which is that none of this happens in a, in a vacuum and that, um, you know, historians are not sitting down with, with documents without a lot of labor from um, staff, from archivists and conservators and curators um, that went behind it. And so I think that... Um, 
you know, one of the things that I did, I did find something and I'm racking my brain trying to remember what it was that was very fragile. Um, but the immediate response was just to, you keep using it, but please be careful. And then it's going to be taken away um, to, you know, archive hospital. But I think that it's important to dwell on that, right? That um, these archives do not create themselves. They don't care for themselves. They don't collect themselves. Um, and that the labor of the people who maintain and, and care for them is really important to acknowledge. Yeah. And I think that's a terrific yeah. point to end on. Zara, Arthur, thank you so very much. Uh, this has been terrific. I'm glad um, our transatlantic internet connections are working out. And so this has been terrific to talk to, to folks in the UK and the United States. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and stay safe in London and uh, in Philadelphia. Um, thank you very much to you both. Thank you for having us. And I want to thank uh, our friends behind the scenes, Jeanette Patrick, Samantha Snyder, and Jamie Morris uh, for working the cameras and helping us with questions today. Hey, next week, we've got a great show on uh, July the 21st at 7 p.m. Uh, I'll be in conversation with my colleague from the University of Virginia Law School, Professor Jess Jessica Lowe, talking about her wonderful book, Murder in the Shenandoah, Making Law Sovereign in Revolutionary Virginia. You know, we, we often think uh, that we are striving to create a republic of, of laws and not men, but spoiler alert, it's not as easy as you think. And we'll talk about how that, how that process plays out in early Virginia next week. Then uh, on July 28th at 2 p.m. in the United States and again, 7 p.m. in the UK. So Arthur, um, you know, sign in. Uh, would you please all join us for a conversation with Dr. Laura Sandy of the University of Liverpool, who's the author of the new book, The Overseers of Early American Slavery, supervisors, enslaved laborers, and the plantation enterprise. I'm really excited about this talk because this is in collaboration with the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. So we're working with our friends uh, there. So thanks so much for joining us. Um, if you have a, a desire to help support our programming, help uh, keep supporting programs like the Mount Vernon GPP Fellowship and like our educational programming, uh, if you wouldn't mind sparing 25 bucks or so, we'd really appreciate it. And we'll have a, a little link where you can do so at the end of this program. Thanks to all of you again. It's been great seeing you and uh, we'll see you next week. Good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.